Lord, we pray tonight, again, as we search your word, would you reveal yourself to us. Make yourself known to us, that we may learn who you are, Lord. Thank you for the book of Genesis as we've walked through it all these months. I'm so grateful for this book and what it sets in motion. What you set in motion in reality and what this literature sets in motion for the entirety of the Bible. I'm so grateful for the promises. Thank you for not abandoning them. Thank you for seeing them through to fruition so that in it we might find you. That we might find community and wholeness and freedom from sin. Freedom from shame. Freedom from hopelessness and despair. Freedom from all the ills of this world, Lord from all the ills of the devil, from all the ills of our own flesh. In you, all those things are taken care of. We're so grateful. God, give me the words to speak tonight as we explore Genesis 25 and think about this passage tonight. We love you, Lord. We're so grateful for you. Grateful for all that you've offered us in your Son, by your Spirit, and in this word that we're going to receive tonight. Jesus' name we pray, and by your Spirit's power. Amen. 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 Well, tonight, like I've told you, we're in Genesis 25, so we'll finish up this chapter. And this is, um, this is kind of a turning point. Like I told you last week, we've been in Abraham for three, three or so months, and um, now we're turning the page. We're going to the next major section of Genesis. Now, I told you early on the major division of Genesis is 1 through chapter 11. Well, really 1 through, yeah, right, the end of 11, kind of, right, that passage there. We typically talk about 1 through 11 and 12 through 50, right? So there's these two major divisions. And the divisions are this humanity focus from 1 to 11. And then, of course, when we get to 12, we meet Abraham. And now we have a focus on one man and his family and the plan that God is enacting through that man and his family, right? So that's the major turn of Genesis. So we saw that a while ago. But now, that line is going to continue to, to come to a point, right? Abraham is the man who was chosen, and it's gone down to Isaac, we've seen the promises, and now that is going to go even further to where brothers are going to be separated. Twins are going to be separated, with one elect line and one unelect line, right? And that's what we're going to see tonight. That's what we're going to see. The Lord has chosen a people, and that people will be named through the boy we're going to meet tonight, Jacob, right? So these major players are showing up, the major players of Jacob and Esau. So, like I told you, we're in Genesis 25. If you have your Bibles, the words will be on the screen, of course. Um, 12, verses 12 through 34. So I named this sermon Twin Nations, and I think you'll, you'll understand why. Uh, these are children, these are real children, but they represent something. And the Lord is quick while they're even in the womb to describe them as nations. As nations. He sees their destiny before they reach it. He is looking into the future and describing what he sees. And this is going to be very significant for the rest of the, New, of the Old Testament and even the New Testament. Paul is going to 
continually hit this point about Jacob, the chosen line. Right? He talks about it in Romans. And he talks about it. And then he makes significant points about God's choosing. This is the passage that lies behind all of them. This passage. Okay. So we'll be introduced to these twins. And you'll see right from the get-go, the Lord in this literature here is going to tell us who they are. And he's going to describe their relationship. And we'll see it through these vignettes, these three different vignettes of who they are. These three different scenes of who they are. Okay? But first, we're going to wrap up the genealogy uh, that had come to a head. And those two are the, the lineage of Ishmael, the lineage of Isaac. Now, I, I've said this early on, you may not remember it, but uh, the actual line when we do the genealogy, the period uh, that really is described the son's life is actually named by the father, the person who is the patriarch of that period, who's really the patriarchal figure. So uh, Ishmael is going to talk about Ishmael's sons, and Isaac is going to talk about Jacob. All the Jacob stories are under the heading of the generations of Isaac. And actually, all the Abraham stories were under the generations of Terah, which, of course, Terah is kind of an obscure figure to us, but all those stories are under that heading. But first, we start with Ishmael. If you remember, I told you the, the Gen book of Genesis always starts with the unelect line first. It talks about the unelect line and then the elect line. And it give, gets really in-depth and gives good characterization of the people in the elect line, right? But there's a little less detail in, Ish in Ishmael's line here. But here's what it says. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebaiot, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbil, and Midsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Massah, Hadad and Tema, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. Okay? Now, it doesn't feel like we can pull much for that, but there is a point here. I hope you'll see it in the next section that's still talking about these generations. Verse 16, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their camps. Twelve prince, princes according to to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt as one goes towards Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. A, a more um, direct translation would be he settled opposite all his brothers. Now, why does the author of Genesis think this is important to say? Why is he giving us this information? It seems random. God's fulfilled his promises to Ishmael. That's the point. What were the promises? He promised Abraham that Ishmael would be a great nation with 12 princes. And he promised Hagar that he would remove the yoke off of Ishmael's back and he would live opposite all his brothers. The point of this passage 
is to remind us that the Lord has fulfilled his promises to Ishmael. And what's that supposed to spark in us? Well, it's supposed to spark if the Lord fulfilled the promises to Ishmael, how much more will we fulfill the promises to Isaac? If this is what the Lord did for Ishmael, what's going to happen with this boy of promise? What's going to happen with the child, the seed, the one we've been hearing about for 12 chapters now? What's going to happen to him? How great is this story going to be? Well, it doesn't seem like it when you start reading it. But you'll see the promises go forward. Okay, Ishmael's wrapped up in those few verses. Now here's a new section. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. I mentioned last week that he was 40 when he took Rebecca to be his wife. Well, here's the verse. Now you see it. <clears throat> he was 40 when he took her to be his wife. But, uh-oh, we're running into a similar problem. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Why? Because she was barren. The matriarchs in this line all struggle with barrenness. Now, Rebecca. We tend to forget that she was barren because that's literally the extent to which they talk about it. We watch Sarah her and her barrenness be the quintessence of the story since chapter 11. The, the whole essence of the story is based on she can't have a child. And that is a focal point of the narratives of Abraham. But when we get to Rebecca, it just mentions she was barren. In the very next story, she's having kids. But she was barren. We'll find out how long in a minute. This is not just a little dry spell. They tried a time and then it didn't work out. She's barren like her mother-in-law, like Sarah. Okay, the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Isaac, the man of prayer, he prays and his wife conceives. What a godly man to be able to pray and have his, wife, his wife's womb open so she can, so she can conceive. Again, look at the miracle of that. That God is opening her womb to give life. And we read that and we're like, man, Isaac is just so godly and righteous. It's just like that. That's crazy. Okay, but while she's pregnant, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? If what is so? If the Lord has answered her prayer, why is her pregnancy so hard? She's despairing of her life because her pregnancy is so hard. She's ready to die, basically. This is so miserable, I don't know if I can handle this. And if the Lord has answered the prayer that Isaac prayed for me, why is it like this? Why is it so miserable? She doesn't know what we know. The children struggle within her. She doesn't know that. So she does what? She goes to inquire of the Lord. She wants an answer. So she goes to the Lord to ask him. Maybe this is a prophet she goes to. Maybe she goes to him and just herself in prayer. It doesn't say. 
But typically that inquiring of the Lord in, in most of the Old Testament refers going to a prophet. So the Lord says to her, this poem, this is the word of the Lord to her. I fixed it for you, Shirley. But it was nice and poetic, each line by itself. <laughs> Two nations are in your womb, Rebecca. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This poem is definitive on who Jacob and Esau are. The Lord is calling out who they are from the womb. This is why there is this debate, this huge debate within Christianity about election and what it means and, and, and who's right about their interpretation about it. It's because of moments like this. The Lord from the womb is seemingly putting His hand to the scale. I'm telling you now, the older will serve the younger. There's two nations within you. They're babes. They're, they're just tiny infants. They're not even out of the womb yet. And yet already the Lord sees them as nations. Who they will become. What the peoples that will derive from them are. So Rebecca, she receives her answer. What's the answer? Rebecca, you're pregnant with twins. And already they've begun to fight. They already are at war in your womb. And these two peoples will grow up and that will be definitive for their relationship. But I'm telling you, one will be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Now I'm not trying to excuse what we're going to read about tonight from Rebecca. But, it makes me wonder if this prophecy is why she favored Jacob. We're never told Isaac knows this prophecy. Maybe he does. We're never told she re that he receives this prophecy. This is Rebecca's answer. It never says Isaac heard it. Maybe he did. Maybe she shared it with him. But maybe this is part of the reason she favored the younger. Because she received this prophecy. I don't know. I'm not excusing it. It it, it just it, it wreaks havoc on the on the family, on their relationships, that they're partial to their children. But maybe this is part of the reason why. I, I don't know. But like I said, this poem is going to explain the next, basically eleven chapters. This goes. This section goes to the end of chapter thirty-five, and this whole section is dominated by the fighting of Jacob and Esau. That is what's definitive on it. The family is broken and the peoples are at war. Okay, so it's going to give us three different scenes to show that this prophecy is already true. It's already happening. The Lord has spoken the word and it is immediate. He, is, he has told us the reality of who they are. One, here's the first scene. 
When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The prophecy she receives is correct. There's twins. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Esau relates to that hairiness, the hairiness of him. So they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Yaakov, Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to him. Okay, a few things. I told you Esau is relating to that hairiness. The, the heel grabber is Jacob's name. It's, they're relating it clearly to the heel. The word for heel is akev, I believe, akev in Hebrew. So it's Yaakov, the heel grabber. He's the one who grabs the heel, so they name him after that, Jacob. Jacob in English. But already you see, this is not a peaceful struggle. If you've ever seen or experienced birth, the idea of a twin grabbing its brother's heel on the way out of the first twin is a pretty violent thought. We have, we have a lot of twins in our family. My mom's a twin. We have, I have twin nephews. I mean, there's, that's a pretty, it's like something out of a horror movie, actually, if you think about it. <laughs> Just the little arm popping out, holding on to the brother. That's kind of scary. But already, the struggle, right? You can feel it. You can feel it in what it's describing. But I also want to mention, how old was Isaac when they were born? 60 years old. Isaac, the man of prayer, the one who were like, hey, he prayed, and Rebecca, she conceived. It took him 20 years of prayer. When did Rebecca and Jake, or when did Rebecca and Isaac get married? He was 40. When did she conceive the twins? When he was 60. Again, these are details we gloss over and think our life is nothing like theirs. They're so holy and righteous and think God just does things and he's so present and he's so there and that's just nothing like what we experience. You feel so far, so distant. How many of us have prayed for something for 20 years? How many of us have been that diligent? Not many. The Bible describes that as Isaac being a man of righteousness, as, as one who's going to pray for his wife on her behalf and the Lord answers that that's a miracle. But he had to do it for 20 years to see the answer. Let me remind you, when I say believe in the promise, you got to have some long suffering. <laughs> I'm not talking about waiting a week to see the answer. You got to believe in the promise. You got to be willing to walk it out for a long time. Sometimes it's a season. God doesn't answer the way we always want Him to, He doesn't answer with the speed that we would expect or hope. Maybe. The Lord is faithful to his promise, and to his promises to us. So Isaac prayed for his wife for 20 years, and she conceived twins. Okay. 
Here's the second scene, the second uh, story that shows that this prophecy is definitive on them. So when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, a quiet man, living in tents. Okay, they have different personalities, clearly. They're very opposed in terms of how they think, how they operate, what their lives are like. But where's the warring aspect? People can be different and live life good together. They can, you know, they say opposites attract. That can work in marriages, it can work in relationships. People can be different and get along. But what does breed resentment? Now Isaac loved Esau. Because he had a taste for game. He was a gourmand, I suppose. He loved the wild game, like the steak kebabs we had tonight. <laughs> but Rebecca loved Jacob. See, this is just two verses, and yet it's an entire another scene that we just gloss over. What is the war? Well, the war pulled mommy and daddy right into it. Rebecca has chosen a side, and Isaac has chosen a side. This is ripping the family apart, but the war is definitive. It's definitive for Jacob and Esau, and now mommy and daddy have each chosen a side in the war. It's destructive, but it is definitive for who they are. Scene two. And then scene three, this is the longest scene, and it's the one we know the best. But it's the despising of Esau's birthright. Verse 29. Now when Jacob had cooked stew, he's hanging out in the tents making some stew, peacefully, quiet. Esau came in from the field and he was famished. He sounds very hungry. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. For I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom. It's typically how we say it in English. Edom. Edom sounds like the word for red. That's where he got his name. It sounds like the Hebrew word for red. And so they called him red. Why? Because he liked red stuff, I guess. And actually, we don't know if it means he was ruddy like had a ruddy complexion, a kind of red skin, or if it's talking about his hair being red or what. But this was his nickname. He was, hey, red. Hey, big red. You know, let's use sometimes. We could probably use that for here. So we don't know, but we know that it was his nickname, red. So Jacob said to him, he wants some of that red stuff. What does Jacob say to him? First sell me your birthright. Okay. Again. We, we normalize some of this stuff and we don't think through what it actually sounds like <laughs> in reality. They're already at war. We've seen two scenes in which they're at war. And now this third one. Esau comes in. He's hungry. He wants some stew. What's his brother's response? Sell me your birthright to have some of my soup. Does that sound like happy brothers? Is that a good brother move? 
Give me your inheritance, by the way. And then you can have some of this soup. That is not good brotherhood. And in fact, that's typically not something someone would just say randomly. It sounds like Jacob is a plotter. He's a schemer. How long do you think Jacob thought about that when he, he threw that out here on this moment? How long has Jacob been devising this? Because it's not something you just throw out randomly to your brother. Hey, give me the rights of the firstborn. I want them. Now Esau has pride of place. We don't have the same culture, but in their culture, primogenitor, which is the name of the rights of the firstborn, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It is the standard by which they live. The firstborn is the one who has the rights, the firstborn son. They have the rights. They have the, the double inheritance. They receive the best of the land. Why? Well, because they'll become the next patriarch. And it's their job and their responsibility to take care of everyone, to provide for them, to do what is necessary to keep the family line and name alive. It's the place of honor, the firstborn. So Jacob says, sell me that. I want it. And Esau said, behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? I'm going to die anyway. So why keep the birthright? Okay. Now you realize the famish is probably not as serious as it sounds when you first hear about it. Because now he's putting on a scene, right? He's sure talking a lot for someone who's at, who's at death's door, right? Now, if he doesn't get some soup, he's going to die. Uh, this seems very overdramatic. For at least from the wording. Jacob says, first swear to me. So Esau swore to Jacob and he sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Listen, it's lentil stew. The red stuff is not a great, awesome, delicious chili or something with like meat in it or some kind of, you know, great soup. It's lentil stew. The guy sells his birthright for a subpar, mediocre bowl of soup. And he's clearly not at death's door, because what does he do? He eats and drinks and gets going on his way. How does the Bible interpret Esau's actions? Thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised it. What was his by right he despised. That's where our passage ends tonight. Jacob is conniving. He's been planning this, clearly. He wants assurances. And what he wants is a double portion, uh, an inheritance that is not his. He seems to have some level of greed, too. He wants what is not his. He covets what his brother has, and so he sells it to him. Now, the, the Bible never explicitly says any about that, any, any one of those things I just said about Jacob. 
But it's pretty clear when you look at his actions, what he is doing, what type of person he is. But the Bible specifically wants to make note of what type of man Esau is. He's the type of man that would despise his birthright. He would sell his pride of place, his honor, for a bowl of soup. Because he's hungry. A man led by his impulses, by his stomach, by his lusts. That's what is being communicated about who Esau is. Now, I'm not saying either of them are saints. What I'm saying is, there's something specific to be said about how Esau operates that is totally dishonorable. Because the idea is that this system that God set up in this culture is good, valuable, worthwhile. And we know that's the case. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, the rights of the firstborn are everywhere. And in fact, every good family in Israel, well, every family in Israel, good or not, but especially the good ones, had to redeem their firstborn son. Why? Because they were the ones who were to be slayed in Egypt. And so a, a, a spotless lamb had to take their place, had to, had to go in their stead and be sacrificed. Why? So that the firstborn of each family would be redeemed. The ones who were meant to die in Egypt would be saved and protected. And of course, what did the Lord do? What did he claim as the, as the firstborn? Well, in Leviticus, he claims the Levites. He says, no longer will you have to dedicate all the firstborn to me. But I'll take a tribe for my name. Levi. They'll be my priests. He'll, uh, the, the tribe of Levi will be the priests before the Lord. And that's to replace the firstborns who were all meant to be dedicated to God. So the Lord is not, this is not a system the Lord is unaware of. This is not a system that the Lord thinks is wrong or bad. This is something that he clearly incorporates into what he's doing. And Esau treats it with contempt. He despises it. So we've been introduced to these two main characters that will be the focus, well in one sense, Jacob will be the focus of the rest of the book. The book ends with him and his son Joseph dying. That's where the book lands at the end of Genesis. But here, here we're beginning to see what type of man he was before the choice of the Lord. Well, maybe not before the choice of the Lord. I mean, he spoke a prophecy over them in the womb. But before he develops from that choice, before he becomes the man God intends through God's choosing of him. But we also see Esau, a dark mirror a dark mirror of who Jacob is. Different, in different ways. But what this is meant to remind us of in the story is the power of God's choice. Right here, they look like they're the same. 
They look like they're the same person. What separates them? Jacob is a conniver and a liar, and he's the deceiver. He's, he's greedy. He's covetous. Esau is dishonorable. He despises his birthright. Aren't they the same person? They're, they're literally twins. They are mirrors of each other. What is it that made God choose one? That's the mystery of election. And that will always be a mystery to us. If you think that answer will come to you, it won't. Regardless of what you believe about election, we look at these men and we see dark mirrors of each other, both sinful, both set in their ways, both at war, both divided. And there's nothing in them that makes us think God is going to choose this one over that one. It makes sense. I figured it out. Jacob seems like he's a better guy. That's why God chose him. It's not there. It's not there. When we go through this story, we'll see how they change, of course. But at this moment, when the prophecy is made over them, there's no answer. We're left with that mystery. And we're left with that mystery in our own lives. Maybe your family is totally wayward and you're the only one who's a Christian. The only one who's an actually a Christian. And everyone else has gone the world's way. Why me? Why me? Why was I the one who was saved? the mystery of God's choice. I'm not saying you didn't make a choice in response. I'm not saying that that's not a true thing. It absolutely is. But there is no doubt that God's hand was also a part of it. That God's hand and his choice is a reality we live with. And oftentimes we're left with the same mystery. Why does why did everyone I know go astray while the holding power of God was on my life. And somehow I found it. I went through the same messes as the rest of my family. How did, how did it work for me and not for them? It kind of, kind of can leave you with survivor's guilt sometimes. Why, why me? Why should I be so fortunate? I don't know. I don't have the answer. But what I do want to tell you tonight, as, as I know in this room, I know this audience well, I know we're all Christians in this room. So this, I think, is particularly an apt warning for us. Because I know we're all Christians. This event is interpreted in the New Testament, and specifically as it relates to Esau. In the book of Hebrews, wonderful book of Hebrews, the story of the Old Testament written again in the New Testament, preached through the story. And this passage comes up at the end of chapter 12 in Hebrews. In chapter 12, if you remember, 
We've just gone through chapter 11. Wonderful chapter. This by faith that's repeated over and over and over again. And what happens in chapter 12? Well, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So, recognize that they were not made complete until we became one with them. Press on in faith with with Jesus as the example. All of those wonderful realities. And then it turns to discipline in chapter 12. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. Don't be an illegitimate son. If you're illegitimate, God wouldn't discipline you. But the fact that God disciplines you is for your good. And it's for that reason that you can be called a true son, a true daughter. Why? Because the Lord loves you. So He disciplines you. But, then it goes on to this story in chapter 12. I'll read it to you. Therefore, okay, He's just said, by the way, don't, don't forget, discipline yields a harvest of righteousness. If the Lord's disciplining you, you will be changed. You will be better than you were. But, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Be a righteous person. Be a righteous person. Pursue peace with all men and pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. If you don't become holy, you will not see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. See to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Let me stop there. What's the birthright? What's the birthright that the book of Hebrews is talking about? The birthright of a Christian is holiness. That's our birthright. That's why he's talking about sanctification and being changed and being at peace and pursuing that. Why? Because it's our birthright. It's your birth as a Christian, what you've been guaranteed. It's your right of the firstborn, that you would be holy before God. So don't sell out your birthright for a single pleasure, like a meal of lentil stew, or an adulterous relationship, or anything that you think will be life-giving, or anything that will fulfill your lust or your greed, or give you a moment's pleasure, and then sell out your birthright, which is your holiness that God paid for. Why? Why not sell it out for a moment? Okay, we haven't got there in the story. We will next week. Sorry, two weeks from now. But here's the answer. He gives you the answer. Why? Why not sell out? Why not sell out for the pleasures of the world? Why not despise your birthright of holiness? It's a warning. So Christians, be warned tonight. The Lord does warn Christians. Be warned tonight. Why? For you know 
that even afterwards, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, not the birthright, the blessing that Jacob steals from him, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now, that's not always the case. I admit that because I've lived it. I've lived it. Every moment that you make a mistake may not be that there's no repentance for it. There's no way to receive it, uh, even though you seek it with tears. I'm not saying that. The Lord is gracious. He's so gracious. And I know, because I've had those moments in my own life, and I've had a significant moment in my life, and the Lord restored me. He allowed me to seek repentance with tears. But the warning from the author of Hebrews is this. The momentary pleasure, you may not find a chance to repent of it. To change your life after seeking the pleasures of the world and despising your birthright. Even if you seek it with tears. Now, that is not to make you question your salvation. It's to warn you to be a person of holiness. Don't be immoral or godless like Esau, who would despise his birthright for a single meal. Despised pride of place in the elect line. The blessings were there for Esau. Now the Lord had prophesied, the older will serve the younger. But the blessings were there. As Esau lived his life, it was his to take. And for a single meal, he sold himself out. Christians, don't be like Esau. Don't despise your birthright. Believe and hold on to and cherish the holiness with which God has gifted you. Because otherwise may not find a chance for repentance even though you seek it with tears. That's what the author of Hebrews says. That's not me saying it. So be warned. Recognize the seriousness of despising what God has offered you. Doesn't mean it plays out that way in every situation. But recognize the seriousness and weight with which God recognizes what happens in this passage of himself. This is weighty. And small sinful decisions can start a trajectory, can start a cascade, can start a waterfall of sin that you were not prepared for. Again, I know it because I've lived it. Small wrong choices can turn a tide in your life that will unravel you. Now God can re-ravel you You'll be a better ball of yarn than you ever were before. I'm not denying that. But the New Testament is clear to warn us. So Christian, be warned. Don't be like Esau, an immoral, godless person who despised his birthright for a single meal. You've got to be better than that. And our birthright is a better birthright than his right. His was the right of inheritance that he sold to Jacob. Ours 
is the holiness by which you will see the Lord. That's what he just said. Without pursuing sanctification, you will not see the Lord. The holiness that's been gifted to us, that we're called to seek out after, we sell out that birthright. It's the birthright of whether we see God. Literally, the hope of all humanity for all time has been what? To see God, to live in His presence. He's gifted us that as a birthright. Don't despise it. Don't let your name be a byword like Esau. A byword of sin. I'll leave it with a warning. I, it never feels right to do that. As a, as a pastor, you never want to do that. But that's sometimes the message. The New Testament warns us often. And when it talks about Esau, it has a warning. Like we should too. Don't despise your birthright. Okay, I'll turn it over to Tyler.